Hi listeners, and welcome to the I Am Global podcast series, the podcast of International Management Division of the Academy of Management. I am Luis Ricardo, and together with the members of the Membership Drive Committee, we are going to talk to scholars from the I Am Division to know more about them, their research and motivations. And I should add, this podcast is one among many initiatives of the IAM division to foster research and practice of management with cross-border and cross-cultural dimension. Visit us at iam.aom.org to get it started. Now on to the show. And welcome to the eighth episode of the IAM Global, the podcast series of the International Management Division of the Academy of Management. I am Luis Ricardo and your host today, and we have the privilege to have Dr. Timothy Dawine, Professor and Chair of International Business at the Alliance Manchester Business School at the University of Manchester. Professor Timothy served as Chair of the International Management Division of the Academy of Management and Head of the Global Strategy Interest Group of the Strategic Management Society. He was co-editor of the Academy of Management Perspectives and is co-editor of the Advances in International Management series and founding editor of Annals in Social Responsibility and Foundations and Trends in International Business and Management, among several positions in different universities. In 2018, Professor Timothy was awarded the Academy of Management's Impact Practice Award for the influence of his scholarship on management practice and policy. And in 2019, he serves to the Global Community Award for his work and influence on the global academic community. Timothy, welcome to this episode. Yeah, welcome, Louis. So, Timothy, you are uh, one of the most important scholars in the IM community right now. Uh, could you please tell us a little bit about your history with international management research? Why did you become interested in this topic? Uh, well, this, this is probably kind of one of the weirder ones. Um, and, and that was that uh, I started um, uh, working uh, in you know, at Vanderbilt and then UCLA um, and, and I was mostly in economics. Um, most of my teaching was in economics. Uh, a lot of the work I was doing was in economics or kind of applied economics areas related to things like innovation, marketing, finance, and law, a whole host of different things. Uh, and, um, you know, and I was even at, at that time, I think I was a, an associate editor at management science. And, um, and when I was at UCLA, uh, I ran into um, Jose de la Torre. And, uh, and Jose and, and I, you know, were sort of interacting and Jose was saying, oh, you know, you really should be working in international business. You know, you should be working more in strategy. You should be doing these different types of things. And, and um, you know, and, and Jose is pretty persuasive guy, you know, so I started to look at some of the work and, um, and, and just a bit on kind of a, a sideline, I, you know, I, I wrote one article which was highly critical of uh, the global integration, local responsiveness framework of Bartlett and Goschel. And, um, and, uh, and, you know, I kind of passed it around and talked to different people about it. And, and there were a number of other people like Bruce Cogut and a few other people who sort of says, Oh, you know, you really should try to, to do more work in this area. And, uh, and the first eight, 
uh, IB conference I went to was in 1997. And the reason I went was because it was in Vienna. And, uh, and my wife um, at that time uh, had an apartment there. So it was, you know, friends there. And so it was kind of easy to go. Um, and Bruce asked me, Bruce Code asked me to come and, and do some stuff. And, uh, and so I just went and, and, you know, presented some of my stuff and did some things and, and, and sort of the rest is history. You know, I, I they got asked to kind of be involved with the uh, Academy of Management, with the IM division, uh, ended up getting elected the executive, you know, got, got asked to do more stuff with AIB, ended up running the AIB conference in Sydney in 2001. Um, and so it, it was literally just kind of serendipitous. Uh, it's, it just kind of happened. Uh, and, and also, uh, you know, and, and the other aspect of it was, you know, starting to do more stuff in strategy. I had set up the first executive MBA program in Australia and New Zealand. Um, and, and, and one of the things I always thought was kind of strange was that we, we, we taught corporate strategy, we taught general strategy. Um, but the reality was that, you know, kind of international strategy was kind of, covered all of that and, and, and actually showed a lot of the weaknesses related to teaching, um, teaching basic strategy. So, so when I set up this, this exec MBA program, one of the first things I did was I actually kind of removed strategy and sort of replaced it with global strategy. Um, so, so a lot of it was kind of, kind of sort of seeing, seeing a lot of the things that we didn't, didn't in, in business and management as kind of, you know, just a subset of what we would, would do from an international perspective. And therefore, you know, if, if that's the case, why not kind of work up to that kind of higher level? Fantastic. I mean, there are so many things we can talk about. I mean, from this whole experience you have. Uh, but today uh, we will explore one of your recent articles co-authored with Professor Elizabeth Rose and uh, Karishma Nagre about philosophy of science in international management research. In this article, you argue for substantial change in the way we test theory in IB. Can you explain what are the critical questions in this matter that you have? Yeah, uh, it, it, basically the, the issue isn't just international business. Um, you know, that, that article kind of looks at international business simply because we, we look at the way in which people test their, their theories in... Um, in that field because we, you know, kind of pick it, but it, but it's completely generalizable. Um, the, the, the original idea started um, uh, a number of years ago, and that is probably for about 20 years, I've been teaching philosophy of science um, to uh, PhD students. And in fact, all over the world, I've taught, taught the course in many, many places. And, um, and in addition, I, I got into a series of debates with, with a number of philosophers and, um, and others um, around the nature of things like replication and testing. Um, and, and, and there's a tendency, for example, to believe that replication is important. Um, and one of the things that, that we talk about in that paper is actually replication isn't really what you think it is. Uh, in other words, the, the, I, I was going to write an article, which I, I, I actually said, you know, what replication crisis? Because I don't think there is a replication crisis. I think the way we think about science is wrong. <laughs> But, but basically, the, the issue there, um, it was also a little bit of a, back, uh, a pushback against what I think is a big problem in our field. Um, and that is that the major journals come back and they consistently ask you, what's your contribution to theory? And, and, and I think that the difficulty associated with answering that question is, 
everybody is spending their time trying to contribute to theory, but nobody's testing theory. And, and if you read that article, one of the implications in that article is, is, is that we've probably never really tested theory. Um, and, and, and I always characterize this a little bit like a horse race. And that is that, that if you, let's say you show up at a, at a, at a racetrack, you know, or you're doing, if this is now March, you know, you're, you're going to bet um, in the, um, in the NCAA basketball tournament. And, and that is, you know, do, do you bet for one team or do you bet for the field? <laughs> in other words, are you better off if you bet, that, you know, one team will win as opposed to the other 63 teams will win. One of the other 63 teams will win. And, and the way in which we actually test theory, you know, if we say we test theory, it, it is in our view wrong. Um, and in fact, we show this in the data. And if you look at the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of papers published in, in things like JIBS or, or Journal World Business, or you could even go into the management fields, you know, look at AMJ and, and others. Um, you can almost find no situation in which um, a researcher or an author tests one theory versus another theory. What they do is they is they 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 carve a theory, and then they what they do is they they go out and they get some data and they ask the question: Is the data in alignment with my theory? But the, the problem with that is, of course, that that data could be in alignment with many other theories, but they never test that. What they do is they ask the question, does the data confirm my theory? So that's the first problem. So essentially what they're doing is they're sort of saying, well, the data is consistent with my theory, but we show if you actually look at, at it's kind of the fundamentals of philosophy of science, there are an infinite number of theories that potentially can, can be explained using that data. So, so the fact that you find confirmation for your theory is, is, is actually not really much evidence. The, the other aspect of this is, is that individuals tend to treat their hypotheses as if their hypotheses were independent. Um, and so what we do is we ask the question, what percent of hypotheses are actually confirmed? Okay. And, and what we find is we find that on average, um, that number is about 60%. Right? Um, and what that means is that means that pretty much if you treat your theory not as kind of testing your hypotheses individually, but you, you, you have five hypotheses in the paper, those five hypotheses are not independent. Those five hypotheses are in some sense a set in which you say, if my theory has some validity, then these are the hypotheses I expect to confirm. Mm -hmm. okay? But you actually, on average, you have a six in 10 chance of getting those confirmed, which is crazy, right? It, what it means is it means that, that if you get, if you, if you walk in with six hypotheses, you know, you know, you expect three on average, three to four of them to be confirmed, which means two to three of them are going to be rejected. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and, and in some sense, what you should be doing is you should be asking the question, not, not ex post explanation of the hypotheses that were confirmed and the ones that weren't, but you should actually be looking at the collective test of all the hypotheses. And, and so if you look at this and you sort of say, okay, well, what does this imply? It probably apply, implies that about 80% of the papers that are published in the journals um, are likely to be wrong. Wow. Which is, damn, which is damning. 
Okay, because because what it, what it implies is implies that we have an illusion of knowledge, and one of the, and, and one of the reasons we have this illusion of knowledge is we're not we're not really treating the structure correctly. And, and one way to think about this is is that if your hypotheses are independent, so that they can be tested independently, then why are they actually in the theoretical section of your paper? Which which means that by definition, the theory is saying these these things go together. They're not independent because if they were independent, then you should set up a study which removes them from the thing that you're really attempting to test. Um, and, and, and if your likelihood is that you're going to get a five or six, you know, 50, 60 percent chance that, you know, things are, are, are confirmed. That's not really good odds. <laughs> you know, that, the, you know, even though if the ones which were confirmed meet a kind of 95 percent confidence interval. You know they're they're outside that interval. They're 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 statistically significant. Um, the the thing that really matters is that you basically have a four in ten chance of being being wrong, and four in ten is is not statistically a, a very strong argument. Wow, this this is really impressive, right? So uh, one of the issues that you also describe in the article is the about the statistical inference, and it connects what with what you just said, right? So what are the hypotheses you are testing and how independent they are and how we are going to test these hypotheses are all uh, in place, are all integrated. As put by Professor Miles Shaver here in a seminar here at the University of Florida recently, uh, he says that we are living this kind of identification revolution in empirical research in social sciences, including sociology, management, all and uh, economics and even empirical law. So in other words, to identify causality and cause and effect, which is the root of the hypothesis testing, right? Uh, and theory testing as well. So yeah. do you believe that the IM research has lagged behind relative to other academic fields, uh, such as economics or finance, in terms of applying more rigorous research methods to better identify the problem? Yeah, I, I, I probably differ a little bit from Biles here, but I, but I understand exactly what he's trying to say. Um, the, 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 the issue is, 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 is really somewhat different. Okay, so, so the, the identification problem really comes in, and that is that, can you get a line of sight which identifies one effect versus other effects? Um, and, you know, you know, sometimes you can do this methodologically, um, and, and some of that becomes, becomes a bit of a data wrangling issue. You know, in other words, you, you've got a data set and you're, you're, you're trying to, to isolate effects in some way that allows you to not, not get confounding, uh, effects, which might cause you to, um, have errors. Um, in fact, there's there's one really really interesting study where where I, I can sort of kind of kind of give, uh, highlight this, which which isn't in international business, but but I use it uh, when I when I teach students, and that is that that you know if you look at at, at trading activity on stock markets um, or financial trading activity, the willingness to take financial risk, um, you you see that women and men behave differently, right? And you also see that young people and old people behave differently, particularly young men and, and older men, um, not so much young women and older women. 
Um, and, 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 and people have for years kind of known this, right? I mean, it's been there, right? And, and one of the things that they, that, that, you know, they've talked about is they talked about this gender difference. But there were a group of researchers, I can't remember exactly where the paper was published, but there were a group of researchers, what they did is they actually took, um, they, they actually tested testosterone levels of individuals. And, and, and what they did is they, is, is they were able to look at examples where they had women with high testosterone levels and men with low testosterone levels, independent of age, okay? Because as men get older, the testosterone levels go down. And therefore you could sort of say, well, well, maybe it isn't being, being male. It's, it's, it's the fact that testosterone levels go down. And, and what they found is they found that, that, that women with high testosterone levels seem to trade more like men and men with low testosterone levels trade more like women. And that, that the, the gender effect is actually masking what, what ultimately is a hormonal effect. Okay, now, independent of whether you believe that or not, okay, so, so just toss all of that out in terms of, of belief. The identification problem would sort of say, well, look, you've actually misidentified the effect. The effect is really hormone levels. And, and, but you can't see hormone levels. They're hidden, you know, unless you test directly for them. And therefore, you have have this surrogate, which you use, which is gender, but the people actually misinterpret what the gender part of it means. In other words, that, that, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of women behave this way with error and men behave this way with error. But the reality is that's actually not it. It's, it's a measurement problem. Okay. And, and, and so, so the, the, the kind of genius of that study was to go out and not try to kind of wrangle the data in some way, but to sort of say, well, what was what might be the operative mechanism which sits below that, which leads to that effect? Okay, and 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 I think that when you talk about things like identification problems, that 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 in my mind is a very good example of sort of kind of where where those problems come in. But identification problems don't stop bad theory, um, and they don't stop bad testing. And, and I think one of the real problems that, that, that we have is that, you know, in, 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 you know some, some poor, innocent graduate students that happen to be giving seminars when I'm in the audience, you know, ha have found this out, right? You know, they'll, they'll, they'll come in and they'll sort of say, okay, well, here's my elaborate theory. Um, and I've got 10 hypotheses, okay? And then what they do is at the end of the day, they come back and they say, well, six of the hypotheses are concerned. Four of the hypotheses weren't confirmed. I'm going to give you an ex post explanation for why I think the four weren't confirmed. And I respond to this in two ways. One way is to say, okay, what's the alternative theory you're testing against the theory you've created for us? And the answer is there is none. <laughs> okay, so, so what that individual's doing is that they're testing their theory against an infinitely large number of other possible theories that they have not articulated. Right. And we don't know whether some other theory might actually be better or just as good. So that's the first problem. The second problem is, is they got six out of 10. So actually, they don't have a the, the confidence we have in, our, in, in, in their theory being confirmed. Is is not very strong. You know, and, and so I, and I literally asked him, I said, is six out of 10 good? You know, um, no, it's not six out of 10. It's not good. 
And then, and then the third part is, the, is, is this ex-post explanation of the things that didn't work. And so what I do is I sort of say, so suppose that the things that didn't work are the true things. And the, thing, and the six that did work, they're actually wrong. Why don't you give me an ex-post explanation for why fundamentally your theory is wrong, but these six things happen to be positive? Okay. And, 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 and I can guarantee that this is, this is, you see none of this in any, any papers, right? In other words, you, you don't know what, they're all, what the alternative theory is that they're testing against. They are not doing a composite test of all of their hypotheses as a group. They're cherry picking them effectively. And they're assuming that the confirmatory, the confirmatory ones are the correct ones. And the disconfirmatory ones are the incorrect ones that need explanation. Okay. So, so fundamentally you work through that and you sort of say, is that good science? Okay. You know, even if it's, you know, is that good social science? And the answer to that question is no, it's not. And, and I think this is the, the problem though, is that this is actually the history of the way in which we've done things. And, 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 you know, and people do not like to hear that because it might imply that we, you know, we have an identification problem ourselves. And that is we're not identifying good versus bad models, good versus bad theory. So given that this is in your perspective, the main problem. So uh, what do you believe that it's, uh, that needs to be refined? Uh, in other words, what could be our, uh, revised research norms to solve this, uh, these problems as, as a field? Well, there, there are a couple. Um, and, and, you know, again, this is where, where you know, pe people don't quite like my explanations. Okay. And that is that a lot of people sort of say, well, you know, we, what we need is we need, we need, we need, we need replication or we need, um, you, you know, kind of pre-registration of, of things. Um, uh, none of those solve the problem. Uh, it, there are also others who sort of say, oh, well, we need more sophisticated methods. And the answer is that, that, that the explanation I gave you before, you can have the most sophisticated methods you want, and they won't solve that problem. So, so, so the first thing that you ultimately need is you need to be able to actually test theory. And you need to test theory against an alternative. In other words, testing, testing your theory against an infinitely large number of alternative theories that you, you have not articulated in your paper and could never articulate in your paper is simply not, is, is not workable, okay? And this was recognized uh, in, in, in philosophy of science going back into the beginning of the 19th, the beginning of the 20th century. And the, you know, so, and it, it created a real paradox in, in philosophy of science because it, 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 it creates a, a real dilemma. And that is that if there are an infinite number of theories out there, how do you really tell which ones are really good? Um, and in the paper, we, we, we try to sort of kind of address that. But, but, the, but, but you can solve the problem in, in, in the near term. And that is that one is that journal editors should not ask the question, what's your contribution to theory? Uh, if, if you are actually testing one theory against another. So you're trying to get a kind of ordering of theories, um, trying to determine what, you know, is, it the, is this theory better than this alternative theory? That is a contribution to science. People should be asking not what your contribution to theory is, but what your contribution to science is. And testing is a massively important contribution to science. If you look at, at you know, all the major sciences 
on the STEM side, they put enormous emphasis on being able to test alternatives and to rule things out because of, of, of the nature of the testing they do. We don't do that, okay? So we need to think about not your contribution to theory, but your contribution to science, your contribution to science can come from simply testing alternatives. And the second thing is that, that we need to kind of have a, a model which is closer to bigger science rather than smaller science. And, and again, we talk about this in the paper and that is we, we, we discussed variations of, of replication. And, and that is that, that every study should have embedded in it a nested replication of a prior study, which means that that in, in, when you when you, when when a paper starts, and let's say that that you know, somebody does a paper and they say, "What I'm going to do is I'm going to build on I don't know you know, Divini 1999." You know whether there's a paper out there, I don't know, but they say I'm going to build on this. Well, the first thing they should do is that they should create a base case, which is a replication of. Davini 1999. And then they say, okay, well, my theory is, is this. Maybe my theory is in addition to what Davini did. But what I've done is I've embedded into my research design what, what we, we call nested replication. In other words, there, there is a, there, there is a, a model which, which, which is a replication of somebody else. In other words, don't create your own measurement instruments. Don't create your own structure. In other words, do what somebody else did and that becomes the base case against which you're testing, okay? So you immediately at that point in time have theory A, which is your base case, and theory B, which is your alternative, okay? So you can then ask the question, theory A versus theory B, not theory A versus the rest of the world, you know, or in your case, theory B against the rest of the world, okay? And, and, and there's actually some examples of this, um, one of which is a paper that David Midgley and Sunil Vinayak and I did, um, which uh, I think has uniformly not been recognized as, 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 as doing something unique. And that was that, that we had done this theoretical paper in organization science where we more or less said, you know, this Bartlett-Goschel framework logically makes no sense. And, and what we do is we, we show that if you actually take everything they say, you don't get the results that they say they get that, that you know that they naturally follow okay and we show that this this you know this 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 four level of different types of structures actually it doesn't make any sense in other words the transnational is not really a, a, you know a workable idea you know the, the the firms are making trade-offs all the time and we talk about how this works but one of the issues that we had when we when we were doing that work was okay well look how do we kind of start empirically thinking about this problem and, and, and so to do this, we look back at all the empirical work that was done on global integration and local responsiveness. And what we did, and this, I think this paper was ultimately published in MIR, um, but I can't remember exactly where it was published. What we did was we replicated every single measure every other researcher did. Okay. Now, if, 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 if those researchers were, were truly measuring global integration and truly measuring local responsiveness, then those, I don't know, 45, 50, 60 different papers with, with a bunch of alternative measures, they should have converged, right? You should have had some validity, which, which would say they would converge. 
It turns out that's not the case at all. In other words, they actually diverged. Um, and, and, and we went, we go through and we sort of explain, okay, well, why would you expect this divergence to occur? And it turns out that, that there are all sorts of flaws in, in the way in which a lot of this was being done. But, but, but the, but the interesting aspect of this was, was everybody believed, right? In other words, we did not find a single study that came in and said, global integration, a little responsive, this is wrong, right? Each of them kind of cherry picked what they were doing so that they got two dimensions, and when they got those two dimensions, they said, aha, I've got the two dimensions. Okay. But when you looked at the corpus of all of those studies together, which is what we did, right? So we, we literally went to a new sample people, new sample managers, and we gave them everybody's measure. We don't get what they got. Okay. And we don't get convergence. Okay. And, and the, the, you know, and so, so it, it, it tells you, you know, that there's something fundamentally wrong, not only with the measurement, right? The measurement is one aspect of this, but, but it was also related to sort of kind of, well, all right, well, theoretically, what is it that, that we're, we're doing here? And does it theoretically make any sense? And the answer was, we, we found that, that, you know, that fundamentally, you know, it didn't. Now, we, we gave some alternatives to think about, okay, well, how much you, how much, how much you redo it? Um, and, uh, and, and the thing that was, that was curious about that, because you go back to my beginning, that was the first IB paper I ever wrote, that organization science paper. And, um, and David Midgley is not an IB person. And at that point in time, Sunil was a graduate student. Um, so none of us had any vested interest in the underlying theories. We didn't care about the underlying theories. We didn't care about who these people were. We were complete outsiders. But what we were doing is we were looking at it with 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 without any bias associated with what it was that was there, and we simply didn't find what they what what they said was going to occur logically, and then empirically, what we did is we showed that we did not find what other people found when we used exactly their measures. So Timothy, uh, somebody could think about well, what if meta analysis could solve or eventually yeah. Marshall solved this problem, and you discussed this in the paper as well. So uh, if somebody comes with this idea of meta-analysis as a potential solution, what do you think about that? No, it's not a solution. Um, because because the, the, the meta-analysis relies fundamentally on the validity of the underlying um, studies that it uses as evidence. And, and the, 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 there's another paper that I'm currently working on, um, which I, I've, I've kind of vaguely titled, We're All Experimentalists. And, and, and that is, you, when you think about meta-analysis, um, you, you have a couple things going on with meta-analysis. Um, and, and you can look at something like the Cochrane collaboration. There's a, there's a, there's a thing in, in the medical field called Cochrane collaboration. And the Cochrane collaboration cranks out meta-analyses. And, 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 it, and in some cases, it, there are AI systems that do little more than crank out meta-analyses. And, and, it, and if you had, let's say, a series of studies being done with a well-designed experimental design across those studies, okay, then you, uh, you, you could literally could plug it into, a, in, into an AI system associated with a meta-analysis, and it could generate the meta-analytic results and tell you where the effects were. 
Okay. But if you have only, let's say, studies, go back to Miles' point, where there are big identification problems. Okay. So I do a meta analysis on global integration local responsiveness. I make an assumption that when somebody measures global integration, that when somebody else measures global integration, they're measuring the same concept. Okay, and what we showed is we showed no, that's not that that isn't even the case. Okay, that that they're just fundamental flaws in the nature of that in the nature of that measurement. And and when you look kind of in the medical profession, or you look in, in chemistry, or you look in in in, um, in in biology, one of the reasons that they can do very quick, very substantive meta analytic work is because the underlying Methods are identical or, or very, very, very similar, comparable. And also the, the constructs that they're using are identifiable. And so when Miles talks about identification, this is, a, this is an issue, right? And, it, and, and, and this is something we don't have. Um, there's, a, there's a nice paper from a colleague of mine, Graham Dowling. I think he did it with Naomi Garberg, where he went through all of the work on corporate reputation. And, and he asked the question, you know, in corporate reputation, you would think it's a singular concept, right? You know, I mean, there's, there's even a journal called the Journal of Corporate Reputation. Um, and the and what they found is they found that, 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 you know, there were just all of these different definitions of what this was. Okay, so that you'd ask yourself the question, okay, well, if I did a meta-analysis on corporate reputation, am I actually comparing the same things? from study A to study B, to study C to study D. And, and, and if you have this, 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 this problem in the nature of that identification, then you really do have a serious problem. So, so in that dimension, this is where I would agree you know, uh, quite a lot with, with, with Miles. In other words, we have to measure the same things in the same way, okay? Now we can, we can, we can, we can adapt that, but, but what we have to do is a fundamental thing we have to do is we have to do it first. Okay. In other words, you have to do it the same way other people have done it. Now, I gave that example of the work that Sunil and David and I did, but I started, you know, a number of years ago, uh, again, completely serendipitous, doing work on social responsibility. And, and, and one of the first studies I ever did in this was we, we ran a series of experiments uh, looking at ethical consumption, okay, which is a concept I don't believe in, by the way. Um, so we re- rephrased it as consumer social responsibility. Um, to get the kind of moral ethical dilemma part of it away from that. But one of the things that we did in that study was that we replicated the survey studies that other people had done. So there was, a, there was an enormous amount of work on, on, um, on, on consumer attitudes. And, uh, and, and typically these studies would come back and say, you know, that there were these segments of, you know, ethical consumers you know, and 80% of consumers would want to consume ethically, you know, or they'd be, their purchasing would be affected by this. And what we did is we, the first study we did, we, we ran a series of experiments on people. So we asked the question, do the experimental results line up with these survey results? And the answer was correlation was zero. And, and, and every subsequent study we did, we actually have a replication of other studies in there. Um, and so, for example, we did one on workers where we where we looked at, you know, again, you get these surveys that come out and say, 
90% of workers wouldn't work for a company that was you know, morally compromised, um, you know, type, type, type of things. Or they, they want to work with companies with good worker uh, uh, responsibility. Again, we find exactly the same thing, correlation between the stated preferences in surveys was zero with respect to the experimental outcomes. And I've even shown this in, in, in field studies. And, and one of the questions, of course, was, was what's going on here? And the answer was there were all sorts of kind of methodological reasons why uh, individuals would be, uh, you know, would, 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 would overstate things in, in the surveys as opposed to the experiments. But the other aspect of this was that was, was there was no fundamental cost to the decisions being made on the part of the individuals in the surveys. Whereas in the experiments, we actually gave individuals a cost of making the decision. <laughs> and, and, and therefore, if, if there's a cost of making the decision, the individuals behave differently. And, and in a lot of our research, we actually don't really think about this. And, and this is a big problem in the, in, in the IB field, because we have all of these theories, for example, foreign direct investment. Right? And, and, and Peter Buckley and Jordan Louvier and I did a, did a paper on, where we ran some experiments on, on senior managers, top management team people back, I think, 2007. And one of the things that's interesting is if you look at all of these FDI studies, all of these market entry studies, they're all missing one critical variable. And that is, what's the return from the activity? So what we do is we talk about, oh, they're going there to seek knowledge. They're going there to do this. They're going there to do this. What's the number one reason why they go into the market? It's because they can make money in the market. What's the one variable that we're missing? How much money they're going to make from the entry decision. And, 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 and if you look at the results from the experimental studies, what we show is we show that's the number one criteria. So, so the number one criteria for why companies go international is almost never in our studies. And you sort of say, okay, well, you know, we, we overemphasize learning, we overemphasize all of these secondary factors. When in fact, the factor which really matters most to the companies is whether they're going to make any money relative to the risk that, that, that they put themselves into. But it's, well, it's, it's really interesting that you mentioned about the experimental approach. Uh, in 2019, uh, the Royal Swedish Academy of Science uh, decided to award uh, the Prize in Economic Science in memory of Alfred Nobel to a group of scholars in MIT and Harvard about yeah. their experimental approach to alleviating global, global poverty, right? Yeah. Uh, so even though the focus of the award was in their contribution to help fighting poverty, the research accomplishments are yeah. specifically driven by the research rigor and methods about that they used were, that was the experimental approach. But at the same time, in macro level studies that we have in management, in which there are dependent variable are at the firm level, most likely, uh, it's very complex, not to say impractical to run experiments, right? So how do you, I mean, well, I, this this is the second page. This is a, another paper I'm writing, um, and and um, I can't remember when it was. It was probably about five, six, seven years ago, um, and I was at a um, at a you know an alternative um, academic association, the Strategic Management Society, 
um, had a uh, special interest conference at Bocconi. And, um, and I gave a talk on management as an experimental science. Um, the slides are somewhere on my website. Um, all empirical studies are experimental. So even if you're taking data from a database, I can actually structure your empirical model so that it's an experiment. Okay, and I, and I think this is where, where a lot of people have this, this problem where they don't understand the nature of experimental design. And that is that they assume that an experiment is something where you kind of have a control group, you engage in a manipulation, and then you look at what the effect is of that manipulation against the control group, right? You know, and, um, and but the reality is that when you run a regression, okay, you're actually, there's an experimental design behind what it is that you're doing. It turns out it's actually a very poor experimental design, but it's an experimental design. In other words, the, 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 there's a direct mathematical relationship between experimental design efficiency and the power of the estimates from, from a regression. In other words, every time you do an analysis like that, I can give you an experimental design equivalent. Okay, could always do it. Um, and, and in this talk, one of the things I did was I, I went through and I sort of said, okay, suppose rather than thinking about our studies the way we think about them, Let's think about them as experiments. What would that imply about the way we interpreted our data, the way we interpreted our results? And it would have a dramatic impact on the way in which we would interpret our results. And, and, the, the, and, and after that, you know, a number of people, Nikolai Foss, Ron Bird, a whole host of people sort of said, you know, you should write this stuff up. Um, and, um, and, you know, and, I, and I've really kind of toyed with it because one of the difficulties is you know, the paper that you were discussing, um, people have a very hard time understanding it, I think. Um, and, uh, and, and the paper starts, for example, that paper starts with, 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 um, uh, with, with, with a statement, a, a philosophical statement, basically a, an analytic statement from, from Doom Quine. And, and one of the questions I always ask when I present the paper um, is, how many people know Doom Quine? And I have yet to find anybody at a conference or a university presentation that raises their hand. Uh, but but the the and 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 so the the whole logic of that first paper is based upon doing quine, and then implications associated with that. So stuff that Long, Long, Longino and others have done subsequent to that. Uh, the experimental idea is in fact even more. <laughs> complicated in the sense that it, it, it has dramatic implications about the way in which you sample data, the way in which you, you, you structure what it is that you do um, in terms of thinking about the model that you estimate as opposed to kind of what it is that you might, might, um, uh, might theoretically uh, examine. And, and one way to think about this is very simply is, is suppose what you do is you, 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 you know, you think about having a model and the model and, and your dependent variable has, you, you say you have two dependent variables, both of which follow a normal distribution. So to ask people listening to this, to think about two dimensions, right, you know, on a, on a sheet of paper, uh, both of which have a normal 
distribution. And then ask the question, what does the data look like from that? From that? And the answer is that it, it will be correlated. In, in other words, you will have a, have, have a large number of things in the middle of the distribution of both, right? So where the two middle of the distributions overlap, you have a large number of point, data points. And at the extremes of the distribution, you will have very little data points. Okay, what does that tell you? That tells you that you can say a lot of, you have a lot of information about things in the middle and you have very little information about things at the ends. And, 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 but if you thought about this as an experiment, would you, would you have experimental sampling on those two dimensions? That was a normal distribution. And the answer is no, you wouldn't you use a uniform distribution. Okay. And so one of the questions would be, well, what's the impure, what's the econometric implication of having a uniform distribution in terms of the, of your two dependent variables, as opposed to having two normal distributions. And it's dramatic, okay? And, 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 and what it has is it has implications about, well, what things can you interpret? And, 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 and people, might, people sometimes come back when I, when I talk about this and say, well, the data is already normal. How do I get a, a uniform distribution out of the normal data? And the answer is it's the way you sample the data. In other words, if you have 10,000 firms in the data set, Okay, you don't use all 10,000 points. You, you, you bootstrap sample so that you have multiple uniform distributions. Now, this is really hard for people to think about. Okay, but, but the implications for your empirical modeling are dramatic. And also the implications for your, um, uh, for your interpretation of the, the data is quite dramatic. Because what it means is it means that you have identical pieces of information about every part of the distribution. In, in other words, you, you, as you look across that two-dimensional space, it, it's not correlated anymore, it's dispersed. Um, and, and, and you sort of say, okay, hang on a second, this is exactly what you're supposed to have in, uh, in linear modeling, right? You're supposed to have independence of the two dimensions. What do experimental designs force on you? They actually force independence of the two dimensions. Okay, why wouldn't we do that naturally? And so, what, so, so you have to rethink how it is that you do the empirical modeling. And, and I can guarantee, you know, nobody in our field does this. Okay, and and the the the, but if you do it, you will find that that it, it dramatically changes what you can interpret and how you can interpret it, um, and and would probably help us a lot in terms of the nature of the way in which we're thinking about things. So, so we have, you know, people will do studies and they'll say, well, I've got 20,000 firms, right? I have very powerful data. You have very biased data. <laughs> you know, you, you, if you look at where that data is, the, the implication is that you, you, you actually may not really be able to say very much about the interesting parts of the data. Well, Timothy, that's amazing discussion. And I would say that this could be a kind of a seminar type of topic, right? I mean, this requires lots of discussion and people to think about and also to yeah. how to address those issues that you uh, pointed out in this amazing yeah. uh, research uh, together with Elizabeth and Karishma. So thank you so much. And to finish our uh, episode, we usually ask you to give a final message 
for our PhD students and an international uh, management in a multinational company. What would be your final message to these two audience? Uh, well, probably two things. Um, one is, is uh, you know, kind of follow Aristotle, and that is that you know you know nothing. Um, so, so, so don't necessarily believe um, your you know, that, that, you know, things, in other words, it, it's, it's very important to not try to prove stuff, um, but to try and understand things. So go back to the nature of the science. The second is to be skeptical. Um, you know, that, that it, it's not, you know, good science is brought up, not necessarily by finding answers, but by finding questions, by, by knowing what questions to ask. Um, and, and, and really picking out the questions that are uh, substantively important. Uh, you know, that, that, you know, that it, it, I have always found myself to be immensely fascinated when somebody does a study and I look at what it is that they were doing. In other words, the question they were asking and, and sort of say, damn, I wish I thought of that, you know? And, and sometimes those questions are just really basic you know, very, 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 very simple questions, but they are, they, they just get at the heart of problems, you know? So, 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 the, so in some sense, the key is find the right questions. You know, the, 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 resu the, the empirical results, you know, the, 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 you know, what it is, you know, you don't necessarily have to prove anything with the question. Sometimes the asking of the question is the most critical thing. Um, and, uh, and, and, and we, we, at times we're not necessarily trained or rewarded for that. But one of the things that I think I always remember from, from kind of, you know, reading about Einstein was that Einstein used to ask all these questions and nobody could find the answers to, you know, and people spent years, you know, decades, you know, just trying to answer questions that, 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 that he, that he asked. Right. You know, and, and, and I think that's a, that to my mind is, is kind of the, the, the key to kind of good science, not seeking, not only just seeking the answers, but, but really, really asking the right questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Timothy, again, for being in our podcast and especially for bringing such an important discussion to our field. Thank you so yeah. much. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Luis. And stay safe. Thanks for joining us for another episode of I Am Global. If you like this episode, please like the track and share it in social media. Stay safe.